Good morning. Got to get my technology to work. Okay. Yay! It's so good to be with you guys today, however you're coming to us. Hi, Finley. And um, <laughs> uh, yes, we are continuing in Exodus, guys. I get the honor and the privilege of talking about the law. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, which kind of makes me laugh that I'm talking about the law. Um, I was joking with some people earlier. It's like, it's, it's fine. It's fine. So, um, but we are going to be continuing on in our story as we work through Exodus, and I'm going to read a little bit of Exodus 19 and then a little bit of Exodus 20, which um, is where the Ten Commandments are. So we're going to read in Exodus 19, verses 1 through 6. It says, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from the Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai. And they encamped in the wilderness. I'm pretty sure at this point they are in the wilderness. There Israel, there Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And then chapter 20, verse 1 through 21 says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, your livestock or the sojourner who is in your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, and the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. And said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. 
The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So I don't know about you, but when I read through these scriptures, my mind goes to the 1956 version, Charleston Heston, Ten Commandments. That's kind of what I go to. I see Moses on the mountain and like the kind of fiery laser pointer finger coming out and um, inscribing the Ten Commandments on the tablets. And as I was reading through this, I was like, that's really not what happened. And so I was trying to kind of take apart what I had in my uh, head uh, from being a child and kind of rereading this with fresh eyes. And as I was going through this, I felt like there were a couple of hangups that I know are easy for me when it comes to the law, and maybe they are easy for you. So I wanted to go through that first before we kind of dig into this text. So I think the first uh, hang-up is just our view of the law. I don't know about you, but what I think about when I think of the law, I think of fines and tickets and police officers and juries and jury duty and court systems. And it's, I just, you know, it's not something where I'm like, let's have, uh, like, Matt, let's have people over and talk about the new IRS regulations. That would be so great. Like, that sounds like a good time. Um, but, so I think one of our hang-ups can be just be the way that we think about the term the law, right? It doesn't give us good feelings. But the word here that is being used is actually the word Torah. And Torah means something very different to what we think and feel when we hear the term the law. The word Torah is used for a lot of the, uh, the Old Testament. But the word Torah actually means it's a father's instruction to his children. It is used in Proverbs 1, 8 through 9, where it says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. And that kind of creates a different feeling or a different image than when we think about the law, right? So when we think about the law, we need to look into the eyes of who the lawmaker is, who wrote the law, and it is the eyes of our Father, and He is the best Father, and He has the best wisdom, and He has the best ways of training us. One really practical, like simple story that made me, when I was preparing this, it made me think of is from the time our kids could walk, we started to train them to not run into the road. <laughs> And um, a few of our kids were easier to teach that than others. Jones started walking, and then he started running like two weeks later. And so he was a little tricky uh, to teach that. He liked to run into the road. But the story that came to mind is our whole family was at a store, and Paisley was around four years old. And so we'd been training her not to run into the road for a few years. And... Um, we were leaving the store. Matt was carrying Finley. He was about 10 feet in front of me and the older three. And Paisley sees him, and she starts running. And so he's in, the, he's in the parking lot. I should have said that. And as she starts to run, I see a car coming. And this car is not obeying the law of the speed limit of the parking lot. And it is going very fast. So I just say, Paisley, stop! And she stopped just like that. It's probably the first time in her life that she actually stopped. <laughs> but that 
that training saved her life that day. And so when we think about the law of God, when we think about the instruction of God, it is like if every law were a fence post, it is the fence, it's the boundaries that tells us the area that is safe. And we are free to run and play in, in that free space. But there are boundaries. So God's law is unlike any law we have experienced from man-made laws. This is God's standard. God, uh, governments didn't come up with this. Cultures didn't come up with this. This is God, bless you, this is God-breathed teaching, and it is the bedrock of our moral law. These, li- these teachings uh, give life and push us to maturity. So the second hang-up is, you know, we're not under law. We're not under law. We're under grace now. And yes, that is true. But grace does not erase the law. It makes a way to live free in the law. Jesus says in Matthew 5, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. And then he goes on. Matthew 5 is the beatitude. Beatitudes, and if you kind of read it through the lens of God reframing the Ten Commandments, it is a very interesting read from that perspective. But he says in Matthew 5, verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, or whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Anyone ever angry? Uh, You have heard, verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Anyone ever deal with lust? Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Anyone hate your enemy from time to time? So Jesus actually makes it more tricky. And so I'm in this place where I'm like, how is this possible? We will get back to that. But right now I want to go back to our content. So going back to chapter 19, God is making a covenant with Israel. He is trying to make a way to have a relationship. God is always looking to have a relationship with his people. He calls them his treasured possession a kingdom of priests and a holy nation if they will obey him. This is grace, this is salvation, and this is belonging. So I want to set the scene here, okay? There's a little portion of chapter 19 that we didn't read, but it really, like, sets the stage. So God has told Moses, I am coming. Get the people ready. So the people are getting ready. They know God is coming. That would be pretty nerve-wracking. And then on the third day... They're in front of Mount Sinai. They're in the wilderness. Side note, I always pictured uh, the wilderness as the desert. It's just like pasture land. I was like, oh, that, I'm a very visual person, so that helps me a little bit to picture this a little bit better. So they're in front of Mount Sinai. God comes on the mountain of Sinai in fire, and the fire is so great that it is covering the entire mountain in smoke, lots of smoke. There is a thick cloud around the mountain, and there's thunder, and there's lightning, and there's trumpets playing. I was like, wait, 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 what? There are trumpets playing, and they're getting louder and louder and louder, and the mountain is shaking. So, understandably so, the people of Israel Israel are afraid. 
that was my mind when I was reading through that. I was like, oh, this sounds like a Marvel movie. It's like Thor on steroids or something. Um, and then, okay, we're going to move into Exodus 20, verse 1. It says, and God spoke all these words. I just want to stop there. This blew my mind. This is a historical moment. I always pictured that it was God speaking to Moses about the Ten Commandments. And then Moses goes to the people and says, These, this is God's law. And that is not what happened. It says, and God spoke all of these words. In Exodus 19.9, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you. What? And may also believe you forever. Deuteronomy 5.22 says, These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain and out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thickness, that, sorry, and the thick darkness with a loud voice, and he added no more. My mind was blown when I read this, because again, my model of Ten Commandments is Charles Ten Heston, 1956. God spoke to the entire people of Israel. This is the only time in the whole Bible that the, that the whole people of God is gathered, and he speaks to them. Yes, Jesus spoke to large crowds. Yes, the gospel has been preached to large clouds. But this is God speaking to all of his people. It is unprecedented. There is no doubting his word. There is no confusing his word. God spoke to them. And he speaks. He says, verse 4, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. His first words to them are personal. He is declaring who he is to them. He is declaring who they are to him. And he is declaring what he has done for them. He, I have saved you. I am your God. I have saved you. I have rescued you. And I have set you free. The commandments are set in place with grace. If the law were the house that Israel were to live in, this was the cornerstone pointing to Jesus. This is the foundational piece that it all rests on pointing to Jesus. Verses 3 through 6 say, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. So he's talking about no other gods. And I think that it can be easy to think, Oh, I don't have any false gods. I don't have to bow. I'm not bowing down to any carved images you know, that's an easy one to think, oh, I don't, I don't deal with that. But these, there was many gods in that time, and they all promised something different. This is what they promised. They promised money. They promised pleasure and comfort and sex and fame and fertility and children and power and promotion. Do we struggle with those things? <laughs> Do we worship those things? Satan has rebranded, guys. The church can become culturally relevant. Satan can also become culturally relevant. And God says, there is one God. The, a lot of these things are actually good in the appropriate context. But God desires to be at the top of our priority list and in the center 
of our lives. Verse 7 says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And the word vain means to empty out, to make little of, to diminish. The Old Testament tells us three ways that this is actually done. The first and most common culturally is just to use the word of, uh, to use the name of God as a curse word. OMG, oh my God, Jesus Christ. They seem common. They seem harmless. But so the thing it made me think of is the phrase that is going around for a while now that's, oh, she's such a Karen. Who wants to be named Karen right now, right? Like no one. Like just imagine if someone started to use your name every time they were excited or upset or angry or, you know, yeah, right, Finley? Like, it just is like, a poor. I know two Karens, and I feel so bad for them. They're wonderful women, you know? It's like, oh, she's such a Heather. Like, that's not a great thing. Like, our names are our reputation, and uh, we want to honor and uplift the name of God. So there, um, the other two ways that we, sorry, guys, I just, there we go. Okay, uh, the other two ways that we, that this, um, commandment can be violated is by making false promises in the name of God and also by saying things that God didn't say. So uh, one of a couple that came to my mind, and these are very innocent, but these are things that our culture says that would be kind of opposed to this commandment, is, you know, the phrase is like, God doesn't give you more than you can handle. <laughs> like, God doesn't say that. God says, I give you a lot. I give you too much. You know, in this world, you will have trouble, but fear not because I will overcome the world. I mean, or I have overcome the world. Excuse me. Um, the Bible doesn't say that. The other one is God helps those who help themselves or help themselves. No, God did, does not say that either. So those are like kind of like common phrases that would fall under this. Everywhere in scripture, the name of, the, of God is exalted in the highest possible term. Psalms 8 says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. Psalms 29 says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Matthew 6, hallowed be your name. Acts 14, there is no other name under heaven given among men which we must be saved. Romans 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Philippians 2, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. His name is holy. Verses 8 through 11 are talking about the Sabbath. Guys, we could do like a whole series on the Sabbath, so I'm not going to try to tackle the, all the ins and outs of the Sabbath. But he says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. So this is a day that is holy, which just means set apart. Um, the people of Israel would rest from Friday night through Saturday night. And as I was kind of struggling with this, like how do you do a very short version of what it means to Sabbath? And um, I was talking with Matt about it, actually, and we were kind of comparing it to where Jesus is, you know, the... The, in the commandments, it says, do not murder, but Jesus says, do not be angry with your brother. It says, do not commit adultery, but Jesus says, uh, do not lust. And so we want to look at the heart of it, and the heart of this is 
to rest. We don't necessarily live in a society where all Christians can take off the same 24-hour period and remember God. But the Sabbath, to rest in God, to remember his goodness, remembering that we are dependent upon him. We are not, we are not powerful. We sleep a third of our lives. We are remembering, and God never sleeps, so we need to remember that he is our rest. Hebrews 4 talks about how God is our Sabbath rest. Verse 12, honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Last week, um, uh, excuse me, um, honor your father and your mother. Your days will be long in the land that the Lord is God is giving you. This can be very challenging if you do not have a mother and father that you feel are honorable. But I was, again, I'm going back to the heart of it, and I think the heart of this verse is to honor those who are older than you, to honor and respect those who have gone before you. And I believe it is possible to find a way to honor your mother and father um, as you whatever your circumstances are with your mom and dad. I, don't, I think you know, all of our stories are different, but finding a way to bring them to God, knowing that they are only human and every parent makes terrible mistakes. So um, these other, I've already touched on these other ones a little bit. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. So covet, guys, here means to lust or to eagerly desire that which someone else has has and set your heart on it. So not, you know, not oh, coveting what your neighbor has. And our neighbor is really everyone around us. Um, so verses 2 through 11, they're the first four commandments, and they are about our relationship with God. Verses 12 through 17 are the last six commandments, and they are about our relationship with one another. And what's interesting is we really can't do the latter without doing the former. Jesus says, uh, in Matthew 22, it says, Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And the first commandment is encompassing the first four of the Ten Commandments. And the second one is encompassing the final six of the commandments. So, man, have we had an opportunity to practice these commandments in the last year and a half, and most of us, probably all of us, have failed miserably <laughs> um, to love God with all of our heart and to love our neighbor as ourself. I heard someone say at the start of the pandemic that the 2020 was about God turning us upside down and exposing who our idols are. And I that kept coming back to my mind as I was reading through this. So if we cannot do the former without doing the latter, that means we need to ask ourselves some questions. I'm actually going to invite you guys to come back on up. I still have a little ways to go, but um, what I want to I want to do something a little bit different. Um, I'm going to ask us some questions, and 
Um, I'm going to have us all close our eyes as I read these questions over us. And I'm just going to invite the Holy Spirit to come and speak to us. And you, when God speaks to us, it doesn't sound like an audible voice outside of us. It doesn't sound like a different voice. It just sounds like our own thoughts. And, and his conviction is sweet, and it is simple, and it is straightforward. And maybe there's a little guilt associated with it, but the, the conviction of God sets us free. So if you, if, as I read these questions, you are feeling uh, heavy and full of shame, that is, not, that is not God. God is very specific. Just like as we read the Ten Commandments, he is specific and he is very clear. So I want us all to close our eyes. I'm just going to read out. I have several questions. You may not connect with all of them. You may not get answers for all of them. But I wanted to ask this question from differing viewpoints. Holy Spirit, I just ask you to come, that you would bring your refining fire. God, thank you for your grace. I just pray that you'd speak to us right now. So who is my functional God? Who do I worship? Who or what do I live for? Who or what can I not live without? What does my money, my emotions, my schedule orbit around? Who or what do I run to in times of need? What causes my highest joy or my lowest grief? You can open your eyes. God has set us free, but we have to live free. We have to walk in freedom. When Jesus healed the lame man, he said, take up your mat and walk. We have to participate. So we get back to the question at the beginning, how is this possible? Because Jesus seems to make the law even harder. When we go to the law, we will see how we have failed. But we will also see what Jesus has done for us and what Jesus can do in us, and what Jesus can do through us. And we will be tempted to sin. And today is the reminder that when we are tempted to sin, that we remember the Father's heart gently saying, hear your Father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head. Jesus is the only one who perfectly obeyed the law so that we may live free. Left to ourselves, we would worship the age-old gods of fame and sex and comfort and pleasure and money and fertility and children and power and promotion and ultimately putting ourselves in the place of God. I've done it so much, guys. I'm so quick to run to Matt or to a friend when I'm having a problem. 
And that's, that's a great thing to do. It's great to turn to those we're close to when we're having a problem or we're low or we're sad. But God is a jealous God and he wants us to turn to him first. We live in a culture that worships self. It's all around us. We were not created to do this. This makes our hearts sick. We were made to worship him. We were created to honor him. All that lives and breathes and is and was is for him. It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. We're going to mess up. We're going to sin. But a good father always welcomes his children back. Always. His mercies are new every morning. His grace never runs out. The Ten Commandments are set on a cornerstone of grace, pointing to Jesus, who is, is always there for us every single day with new mercies. We bow our knee to the God who rescues us every single day. And the only appropriate response is to worship.